Hey there, and welcome to Living Through It, a podcast for interesting times. I'm your host, Elizabeth Cronice McLaughlin, a recovering lawyer, world-renowned leadership expert, and lifelong progressive activist and organizer. Reminder that if you want to listen to this podcast ad-free, you can head on over to patreon.com slash living through it. That's patreon.com slash living through it. You can get access to our entire back catalog ad-free there. And also, we have some special bonuses for our most favored listeners. Thanks so much for being here. And now, here's this week's episode. Hi there. Welcome back. I am so thrilled to welcome the author and speaker and all-around icon known as Minda Hartz to the podcast this week. Minda is the author of three books. One of them, Right Within, we discuss quite a bit on this particular episode, and it concerns how we heal from racial trauma in the workplace. I want to recommend this book to everyone, regardless of identity, because the substance of it is so critical for anyone who's in a leadership role of any kind. Um, And particularly for those of you who are in positions where you lead teams or where you run an organization or even a campaign or an organizing effort, The substance of this book is so critical to creating equitable spaces for all of us. Um, I'm just so excited that we've been able to have Minda on the podcast, and I think this episode is really going to resonate with a lot of you. One quick word of warning, there is a racist term that is contained in this interview that came up in the context of Minda describing some of the things that she was subjected to as a child. Uh, I want to put a content warning on that for anyone who uh, may need it. Because um, the stories that Minda describes in this episode in particular are uh, not easy, and the context is important for her work and how she came to this place of doing this work that she's doing to really heal trauma and racist trauma in particular for women in the workplace and Black women in particular. So please be aware that that term is in there, and it is in the context of Minda telling a story of a racist event from her childhood. As well, I want to just mention that we recorded this interview in advance of the midterms. There is some discussion about voting rights in this particular episode. Uh, In the event that a little of it seems kind of out of kilter from the timing, that's the reason why. But I do want everyone to be aware that um, the vast substance of this interview is so rich and so rewarding. And notwithstanding the fact that it was recorded at an earlier date, I think you're all going to get a lot out of it this week. So thank you all for being here as always. And please welcome to Living Through It, Minda Hearts. Okay, I'm so excited to welcome to Living Through It, my friend and the incredible author and advocate for Black women at work, Minda Hearts. Uh, welcome, Minda. Hey, Elizabeth, happy to be here. Excited to be in conversation with you. Yeah, me too. I'm I'm so glad you're here. I will tell our audience that um, you have had such a major impact from a publishing standpoint over the last couple of years. You've been so prolific. And, you know, we're going to talk about this a little bit, you know, how, how, what the experience of writing books through the pandemic and the George Floyd uprising, what that was like for you. I will just say that, um, that I see these books everywhere. And, you know, it's just such, and I don't just mean in bookstores. I mean, I see people talking about 
them and posting about them online. Um, so Minda is the author of three books, we should say, to begin with. Um, the first is The Memo, um, and we'll talk a little bit about what led you to write that book and to make the career changes that she made. Um, the second book is called Right Within, which is about healing from racial trauma in the workplace. Um, I love this book. Um, I love this book uh, for the title because every time I, I see it on my bookshelf, I hear Lauren Hill's voice in my ear. Um, <laughs> and also because of the framework it lays out for healing, which is so um, beautiful and rich. So we're also going to touch on that. And then you have ventured most recently into the young adult sphere, uh, writing a book called You Are More Than Magic, which is for Black and brown girls everywhere. And we'll talk a little bit more about that too. Um, but, you know, I kind of want to start with um, how what led you to this place? Because your work on racial trauma in the workplace and, and Black women's success in the workplace in particular, I find so groundbreaking. Uh, and I know that you tell the stories, um, you know, particularly in Right Within of your own experiences in the corporate world. Um, I, I think it would be really helpful for folks to hear what led you to the big realization that your voice and your work uh, was needed in this way? Yeah, that's a great question. It's it's funny because I, I don't, a lot of people who may not know of my work, it's only been four years since my books have been out, in, or less than four years that I've been out in the world. And so for 15 years, I spent in corporate and nonprofit spaces as the only, uh, only Black woman, only woman of color. Um, and I just thought that that was the way my life was going to be, Elizabeth, you know, like having to having to suffer in silence. I thought that was, you know, that was the way I get to my gold watch. That's how I get to retirement, you know, and and it was killing me softly uh, while I was um, in these spaces because I just never felt seen, never felt heard. Um, and at some point, long story short, I sat in my car in 20. 14 and I cried like crocodile tears because I'm like, God, you know, I'm early thirties. I can't keep doing this. I can't, I can't navigate the space like this. And if I'm feeling this way, then there's gotta be other black and brown women that feel the exact same. And what am I going to do to make the workplace better than I found it? And that's what led to me saying, you know what, I've always had a voice. I just have to decide how I want to use it. Yeah, I, I love that. And I and I will tell you that, um, you know, one of the things that I've thought about a lot um, since reading Right Within was the experiences that you describe in there, um, you know, it, that that are personal. You know, obviously, you've changed some names and some sites and all that good stuff. But um, but, you know, the the buildup of microaggressions in particular um, just even in the way that you describe it in the book really feels to me like death by a thousand cuts. And, um, you know, in my experience, you know, as a woman, just as a white woman at the top of, you know, law where I used to practice was incredibly torturous um, in, at the end of it. Um, your experience, it, it, you know, as in the intersectional context of being a black woman in a corporate environment, with the things that you experienced is viscerally painful. And also very clearly, you know, in, from your book and the way that you write it and, and how much your work has resonated also universal. And that, um, that, that makes me incredibly sad and also hopeful because your work is such a pathway out. So, you know, one of the things that I wanted to kind of touch on was, um, 
this framework that you describe in Right Within, which is the racial mosaic framework, because I I found it um, to be, you know, a real roadmap to healing of all sorts. <laughs> but in addition, it's really designed for black and brown women who have struggled with racism and, you know, sexism and overt and covert discrimination in the workplace uh, to do the work of not taking it on and carrying it around and carrying their bags as you describe it. Uh, so tell us a little bit more about RMF and how it works. Yeah. And I'm glad that you said that because I think some people who haven't read the book, they'll be like, well, I don't, I'm, I'm white or I'm this and I don't have the racial trauma. But if you've experienced any trauma in the workplace, this framework can help you do that. And I think that to your point, I was in corporate for 15 years and every day I went to work, I felt racism, sexism, an ism of some sort. So just because I left that space doesn't mean that I'm miraculously, those pains don't still hurt, right? Those triggers don't show up in how I live my life in other ways. And so for me, I was like, you, you know what? We can't control if Bob changes or Chrissy changes, but we can control how we live our life uh, because the people who love us the most don't get the best of us because we have been harmed, even if we don't, even if we've normalized the behavior. And so for me, one of the things I kept wrestling with through my journey was, am I healed, right? Did I get there? Does it have to happen overnight? And I often say that healing is not a one-time event. It's a lifestyle. Okay. So, oh, yes. Yes. So, so the racial mosaic framework is based off of how do we re-see ourselves? How do we repaint this picture of healing? What could our new paradigm look like, right? And how do I know if it's happening? And, and number one of the steps is acknowledgement. I think as women in particular, we have normalized and swept all these bad behaviors, toxic behaviors in the workplace under the rug and we don't even acknowledge it. Maybe we'll never acknowledge it to HR, but come on girl, at least acknowledge it to yourself. <laughs> yeah. yeah, right. And I, I think that, you know, that that to me is so key, particularly, you know, I think I think about it through the lens of how many friends I have had who have had something horrendous happen to them at work and the response that they've gotten to it, whether that's from colleagues or from HR, God forbid, or from supervisors is, well, that's just the way it is, right? And I think it's easier, you know, acknowledgement is only the first step of RMF. But I, you know, I think that one of the things that is so key about that is that when you are getting reinforcement from people around you that it's not as serious as it seems to be, or that you should just buck up and keep going, um, that actually causes another layer of trauma, right? Because your experiences are being dismissed and you're being told, it's, a, it's a really a form of gaslighting. And so the acknowledgement is the first step to me seems to be so key. It's, it's you know, something similar to what folks say in recovery, which is you can't admit you have, until you admit you have a problem, you can't <laughs> fix it. Right. In, in much the same way that until you admit that you've actually been harmed, um, it's hard to to step forward from that. Okay, so so keep going. Tell us what the next yes. steps are. <laughs> so to your point, like that impact versus intent. Yes, Jim might not have met harm, but the impact is harmful to you. So regardless of if everybody's telling you that's just Tom being Tom, did it bother you? Did it harm you? Let's acknowledge that. Number two, you have a choice in the matter. You get to decide what you want to do. You don't, you can to just decide to sweep it under the rug if that's best for you. You can decide to take it to your manager. You can decide to leave the workplace, right? Like I think sometimes we tell ourselves that, you know what, I just got to get an advanced degree and making every bad thing work, you know, and we have decisions. And I think sometimes we just need to be reminded, you know what, 
I do have a choice in this matter of what I want to do and how I want to handle it. Number three, accountability. I think we have to, to your point, we can't conquer what we're not willing to name. So Tom caused me harm. Shaniqua caused me harm. Like I'm getting to the place of being able to say, this was not my fault. I didn't do anything to create this situation. And this is the person. Again, you may never tell this person to their face, but you have to have that part of your healing is saying, this caused me harm. This person caused me harm. And I found so much healing in saying, in the books I call her Carrie, I didn't ever wanted to say that Carrie was racist. I never wanted to say Carrie was toxic. In the moment that I was able to name it, I was much freer than I was, you know? So that accountability is is key. And then drawing your line, like if you do continue to work in this space and you're not, all of us can't just leave and quit. You know, I know that I was in a situation that I couldn't just quit that day, even though I wanted to, but I drew my line. I understand who this person is now, right? I'm not gassing myself up that they're going to change next week or something's going to happen. I'm drawing my line. So now I know how to move with them or without them. And then number five is I'm vibrating higher. I'm choosing just because they're cutting up in the workplace or being toxic. I don't have to let that slow me down, dictate my healing. And I don't have to engage in certain ways that I did before, because I think part of it, we're like, oh, well, I have to work with this person but you can create boundaries, right? And I think all of our healing is really rooted in boundary setting. Yeah. I mean, I it's funny because I think back to um, when I used to do a lot of corporate consulting on diversity and inclusion and, you know, the way in which uh, there was one company in particular that um, that I did a little bit of work for that shall remain nameless, where an indigenous <laughs> woman had a manager who was mistreating her on a routine basis. And she and I had to have, and she couldn't quit. Also, she had a family, she had children she was raising that she was supporting. And um, her choices in that moment uh, were what they were, although she's now gone. She actually like, you know, in many ways, without knowing it, followed your framework kind of to a T. Um, but I, but a lot of that was, a, you know, our work together was about how do you set those boundaries when you can't leave that protect your spirit, that protect your soul, even that keep you from, um, from taking on as much toxicity as possible. And I think it's incredibly painful and difficult. I mean, these are nuanced conversations, right? Because when you're dealing with systems that encourage and support racist individuals. Cause you know, by the way, it's not like this person, it was the first time there had been a complaint. And I find that I found that so often in many of the environments in which I did some of this consulting. Um, but it's also about how can you set energetic boundaries even so that, you know, at the end of the day, you're not going home with all of this. I think your point about, you know, do the people we love take on the burden of this when we are in toxic environments, when we are being subjected to harm, how can we get through that to the to the best of our abilities to make sure it's not impacting the people that we really care about? Um, so yeah, I mean, I think all of this is a really key and important framework, and um, and it it's it also just like roots a lot of food for thought. So do you, you know, let me ask you like a kind of broader question on all of this, um, because as I was getting ready for this interview, one of the things that I was just thinking about is the way that white supremacy lives in institutions. Um, and I, I have struggled even in the work that I used to do in corporate uh, with what do you do with institutions that are inherently toxic? <laughs> and I know I don't know what your thoughts are on that. I mean, I will just tell you that I have sort of given up um, in some circumstances, and I have frankly recommended that clients give up on certain institutions that do not demonstrate the will to change. So, you know, what are your thoughts on that? 
I'm I'm with you. I feel like now we're at this space where we've been talking a lot. Now it's time to demonstrate, right? Show me the money. Show me the the there there. And for me, it's like, why would I keep wanting to connect with a company or work for a company that two years later, I still see the same people in management. Not much has changed in my career. They're still let so-and-so be so-and-so. Like everything around it is still toxic. Like let's not go back to normal, but let's get to better. And I don't see that many of these companies are getting back to better. So for me, I say to people, again, we all have decisions and choices, but the demonstration piece is huge, right? So if you are going to work in these spaces, then make it work for you. And that's what I did when I talk about healing while you're in hell. You know, I still was in my old workplace yeah. and, and it was toxic as F, but I realized that I had to, what am I, how am I going to make this work for me? Right. So what are the certifications that I need to get out of this? What are the stretch assignments? Like, so if you can help, if that place can help you prepare for your next best thing, then I think that that's worth it. But at the same time, understanding, protecting your energy and it vibrating higher, if this place is never going to do that and it's going to harm your healing journey and your your path to freedom, then ask, what are the consequences, right? And there's consequences if we keep kind of being in bed with these certain companies because they don't want to change. And I think now there's so many companies that are realizing that diversity is healthy, that equity is healthy, that we have options now. Before, we it was kind of limited. We didn't know where we could be. If you lived in Mississippi, right, you're like, well, what are my options? But now someone in Mississippi can work in Silicon Valley right from their house, right? So we have options. And I think we just have to remind ourselves of that. Yeah. I mean, I think that's that's incredibly key that especially, I mean, this may be a silver lining of the pandemic is that there's much more available, you know, in terms of remote work than there ever has been before. And that's that's helpful. I mean, I, I personally find myself a little infuriated these days uh, by all the folks who were out there during the George, George enemy corporations that were out there during the George Floyd uprising, committing to Black Lives Matter and claiming that they were all for racial equity. And then the next thing you know, they're donating to Republican candidates that vote against things that benefit voting rights, for instance, for Black Americans, or that support police reform and, you know, issues that uh, that are very key, that were so front and center during the uprising itself. Um, you know, I do think that one of the things that um, corporations, I think, need to also lean into, and I will just be interested to hear your thoughts about this also, is that many of us at this point um, who are invested deeply in racial justice and racial equity um, see through the words, right? That there, that we're seeing a really big difference between what's being said and what's actually been done. Um, and, you know, I personally am, am looking for action on this front, right? And I mean action in terms of real leadership reform, not just like we're going to donate to a given candidate or to a given cause, but, you know, like, are you actually putting Black women in the C-suite? Are you actually hiring diverse slates of candidates and not giving us the gaslighting language of we hire the best person for the job? So when you do work, I mean, how are you advising companies, because I know you do an enormous amount of public speaking in corporate environments. Um, what are you telling them about how to follow through on some of the promises that they may have made publicly in 2020? Yeah, um, because I see a lot of companies, uh, it was a lot of lip service. I think that, again, the intention was good, but the impact is still harmful. Um, yep. It's like stepping on their employees next another time by not doing the thing. So for me, I'm really um, hitting hard now on trust. You have to rebuild that trust with your employees because they're side eyeing you. They don't believe you. 
it's been two years plus and you haven't done anything. And some of you haven't even paid those commitments that you said you were. So it's like, why are we here? What are we doing? And so I think, and I hate to even use the phrase, but we've heard it a million times, but people are quietly quitting, right? And so if yeah. you, <laughs> and all of those things. So I think for me, one thing that I advise companies is say, okay, you didn't do what you said you were gonna do. Let's be transparent about that. Let's not play this game. Everybody's grown everybody's adults let's apologize that we didn't do what we said we're going to do but here's what the next leg looks like and i think those are the companies that people can say you know what maybe we can be get behind it and see what happens now that we rebuild this trust and i think trust is so broken on many levels that we have to get back to that and number two of that is saying okay we didn't do what we said, but here are the metrics and we're holding our leadership accountable when they don't hit this, right? Man equity is not optional, equity is mandatory. And so I'm very clear on how do you have someone in leadership who's not comfortable calling their employee by their preferred pronoun? Why are they still here? Right? <laughs> you know, like there's no way they can um, promote in advance with an equitable lens. Like, do we have the right leaders in place? And I think companies really have to be clear on who's going to take us to that next level. And if it's not, if you want to stay where you are, great. Let us know that and we'll go find the other companies, right? So I think that's kind of where I am I am with it. Yeah. You know, it's amazing to me how many companies don't tie equity to pay. I mean, I you know, I think about the companies that I worked in where I, you know, I was making those kind of recommendations like six, five, 10 years ago, even um, where, I, you know, literally I was like, how can you not put the development of equity as a box on somebody's performance review, how can you not actually force people to be invested in it if they aren't, right? Um, and I think that so much of this has to be about a willingness to stop tolerating folks who will not step up and actually like create it in their teams and in the places where they work. So so yeah, I'm all about that. And I, and I will just say as well that I think um, one of the things that, that I think about so much is how many major co like corporate leaders don't think about how much this has the potential to impact their bottom line going forward. Like I remember having conversations five years ago where I said to people, do you not understand that the next time that you pitch to a major client, they're going to be asking about the diversity of your team. They're going to be asking whether or not your team represents the values of your potential customer or client. Um, and, you know, it was amazing to me, albeit a lot of white men, but, you know, like how many folks didn't think about that? That it actually, the diversity and equity is an issue that impacts the future of your business, right? Um, so, you know, I think we're on the same page about this. I could rant about this for hours myself. <laughs> well, you know, we are. You know, it's funny. Uh, last week I was in Louisville, Kentucky at a Women of Color uh, conference and their allies. And one white woman was on, um, was speaking. She's in senior leadership. And she was saying that she had to take a step back. And she looked at her team since the George Floyd uh, murder. And she did some, she started to be more intentional about her hiring. And she realized that she hired like second in command to her was a black woman. And then she let her lead the team. And then she hired more women of color and women on the team. And she said their department was the highest performing of the last two years. And she's like, I would like to say that it was me, but I was just smart enough to hire the right people. They happen to be uh, black and brown women and the sky is limited. And she's like, but I wasn't thinking that way two years ago. And she's like, now it's not even 
uh, is it good for business? It is good for business to have diversity. <laughs> well, right. I mean, that's one of the things also that just like slays me about this is that the perceptions even of like, you know, what's good for business is of course coded with white supremacy, like everything else that we live through. Right. <laughs> so of course, wouldn't, I mean, it just in some sense, this is so obvious to me, but I don't understand why leaders can't see that the more diverse voices that you have at a table, the more diverse talent that you have sitting in a boardroom or, you know, on a, on a computer network, frankly, like, you know, in design, in artificial intelligence, in like anything, the better production you're going to have, the better product or the better team or the better service you're going to have. Because viewpoints contribute to how iteration takes place, right? So like all of this is tied together. And I think that, um, one of the things that I just find so distressing is that so many people sort of feel like, oh, diversity is just a way you placate the workforce or like these conversations are just a way that we keep people happy and we keep them retained. When the reality is that you are matching what you do as a business to America or to the planet, right? And and that to me is, it it's such an obvious asset. You know, I, I, like, I, I just, I feel so... I don't know. I feel like so many people are so far behind the times on this stuff. And and so I'm just glad that we're having this conversation. <laughs> I mean, it's, me too. It's so key, right? Um, to yeah. the future. It is the future. Diversity is the future. And I think that some people get really scared, Elizabeth, because they're like, well, if we're talking about diversity, then that means that I don't have a seat at the table. This isn't musical chairs. When equity is at the center, <laughs> then everybody still gets a bite at the apple, right? But everyone has not had that chance. And so what, what could the workplace look like if we expanded the table, if we added more seats? We, we all get to benefit from that. And I think that this scarcity mindset of, oh, well, if we're focusing on Black women this year, then what about all the white men? Look at the About Us pages. Look at the numbers. Nothing has changed for you. <laughs> okay. right, right. Things are still right. the same. Right. And it's also, it's just the zero-sum mindset, right? Yeah. I, mean, I, I This is one of the things that I actually talked about in my book, which is that, you know, like when you're in a zero-sum mindset, your thought is when someone else wins, I lose, right? When someone else succeeds, I fail. And if the reality actually is that, you know, when all of us across marginalized identities, women, Black women in particular, Black trans women in particular, you know, everybody of every identity that has historically not had a seat at the table gets a chance, um, that actually creates more for all of us, right? Like everybody wins. So I think some of this is also about just the mindset shift of, like, how do we actually measure success, right? Like, and if if you're measuring it only by the way that it's always been done, um, and your mindset is that there's only so much of a pie and so many seats at the table, then inevitably you're cutting yourself and your company and everybody else short, right? Um, so I think so much of this has to be about like, you know, changing the way we think about what makes success and what makes effective business. So yeah. Um, and this is last thing I'll say about it. And this is part of healing the workplace, right? right? We're continuing to harm the workplace when we don't have this ideology, when we don't have this lens. And that's part of how do we build trust? How do we heal the workplace? How do we provide psychological safety? You have to have this embedded in the the social construct of of every organization and company. Yeah. Uh, we're we're so obviously 
<laughs> right in line with each other and all this stuff. I love it. Um, so tell me, so, you know, I, I finished my book during the pandemic, which was hard enough um, in and of itself. Um, you know, as a single mother with two young kids at home, I had my own challenges with that. Um, you finished right within um, both during the pandemic and uh during the George Floyd uprising. And I know that that, um, just from what you've said about it and what's in the book itself, that that, that experience influenced a lot of what you were doing at the time. So, so talk a little bit about what your process of that was like. Yeah, it was so tough. I mean, we were all in what a syndemic, multiple pandemics happening at once. And um, it was just hard to write about healing from racial trauma when I was constantly feeling like, I was living in a state of racial trauma, right? Politically, socially, you know, health-wise, all those sorts of things. And it was really, it took, Right Within was the hardest book I've written to date because it took so much of me to try to say, hmm, is this, is even living in this country, is it compromising my healing? You know, all of these questions, um, you know, I love James Baldwin. He said that I love America, but I, I, have to continually uh, criticize her. I have that right because this is the experience I have in this country. And so for me, it was really hard, but I was even more convinced that we needed healing, that we needed to talk about what healing could look like. Because even if we feel like at every turn things are harmful, what can we do to rise above that? What does true freedom really look like in our bodies, in our minds, and those sorts of things? And it was, even though it was hard to write, I knew that I had to get it out there because um, healing, it sounds real, you know, cliche, it sounds like a really fun, but it takes work to heal and, and, and to be your most healthiest self. And I think that was part of it because the workplace kept talking about bring your authentic self to work. You're having all these conversations, but I'm like, you know what? It's not authenticity that we need. We need our healthiest selves. And I realized that, um, if we're healthy, then we get to contribute in ways that we might not have been able to before. And so for me, it was really just this cry for freedom that I had to get to and I had to push through and call my therapist more often, you know, all those sorts of things because I just knew how important, again, what is the consequence if we don't heal, right? right. And I knew that that was huge. Yeah, I mean, and the cost of it, I mean, it's just enormous. I mean, even in my own trauma healing work, the difference when you are able to heal, I mean, this is one reason why I just think mental health care and trauma therapy in particular should be free to everyone and particularly everyone. to anyone who has experienced sexism, racism, homophobia, discrimination at work, um, you know, because the, you, you are a different person when you are living in an actively traumatized state than you are when you are given the resources and the tools and the time and the support that you need to heal. Um, and I'm just, I'm just so grateful for your book. I mean, I just think that it's, it, it, it covers such a necessary topic in such a novel way. And it has opened doors for people to really consider how they can move through horrific experiences in some instances at the hands of companies and bosses. So, so I'm so, I'm so grateful for that. And I know that your work is not just about healing what has happened, but also paving a roadmap for the future. And so I want to talk about your most recent book a little bit. Um, you Were More Than Magic, which is written for black and brown girls and and why you were called to write something in the young adult sphere. And, and tell us a little bit about that and about you know the impact that it's had, because I know the reception has been, I mean, from what I've seen, I've been very moved by it. 
Thank you. Um, it's been funny too that even adult women are reading you are more than magic because they need to go and heal their 13 and 14 year old selves, right? So that's been really important. But for me, because I do a lot of work, you know, with adult women, I guess you could say in allies and managers, I thought about the younger version of me and the trauma responses that took me into those workplaces. So yes, I was experiencing racism, sexism, things of that sort. But what did I bring with me? to the workplace as that 16 year old me, the right that have my voice silenced by my white teachers or whatever the case may be. And I realized that I actually had to go back to that self and say, you know what, you are more than magic. Your voice, you have a voice right now, right? Even if the people in your life don't have the tools to communicate, you can set healthy boundaries and all those sorts of things. And so I wanted the next generation, us not to pass along tools of survival, but tools of thriving. And I wanted to catch that group earlier so that when they get to be our age and they enter the workplace, when someone does say, oh, you people love your bright colors and talks really crazy, they are actually, wait a second, what do you mean by that, right? They don't, they feel their sense of agency is not being taken away from them. And so it was really important for me to write a love letter to them to say, you have everything you need inside of you and, and just let's hone in on these things. You matter right now. And I just don't want you to take that to, cause to your point, I, I notice it in myself is a lot of how I respond to things are trauma responses. Right? And so if we can get ahead of that a little bit earlier and, and the other beautiful part of you are more than magic. I did write it for young black and brown girls, but also there's a reading guide in it for white parents and guardians, because it's important that and educators that they understand who's in their classroom, right? Who's on their team that they're coaching the young, uh, you know, men, women, and royals um, that they're raising in their households, that how are they responding to their black and brown classmates, right? Because when I was younger, one of my great, great white girlfriends said, called me a tar baby, right? She didn't, and where did she get that language from, <laughs> you know? So it's one of those things that I just felt like we needed to have these, a very safe kind of slumber party conversation to be able to address some of the things that will eventually, they'll meet them in their adulthood. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's so beautiful and so powerful. And I will just tell you that, you know, from where I sit, I working on anti-racism with my own children is something that feels to me like it's kind of like a lifelong calling, right? Um, and so I feel like these conversations, not just the conversations that you and I are having and had before and will continue to have as friends, <laughs> um, but also, you know, the conversations that we're inviting our kids to um are are so critical because they carry that into the classroom and then they carry it into the world and then they carry it into the workplace and you know if we're really about building cross identity movements to create a better future so much of that has to start as well in the kids that we're raising and that we mentor and that we give our love and attention to so so I'm grateful for that. You know, I'm sitting here thinking about the fact that my kid's fifth grade teacher is on the equity committee for the entirety of our school district. And she's already been a part of curriculum review in, in light of the George Floyd uprising where they went through and they reviewed everything 
to make sure that it was equitable and inclusive and actually affirmatively anti-racist. I'm so lucky to live in a school district. I just can't even tell you. Like, you oh, are. Like, That's oh, a blessing. <laughs> but also some things that are really, really good. You know, like um, like I have these conversations on the playground when I drop off my kids in the morning. It's really nice. Um, but I'm just thinking about the difference that a book like this makes in terms of the roadmap that it gives to educators as well as parents and as well as our kids. So, so I'm so, so just so, so grateful for that. Um, how are you feeling these days about how we're doing on all of this? Because I, I have my moments where, um, where I, I don't want to say I'm hopeless. I get cynical about all of this to a certain extent, right? Like, just like I said, you know, here we are two years later and we're talking about was it lip service, right? Um, how are you feeling about the current trajectory? I, I, I'm still optimistic. I, I still am um, because two years ago before George Floyd, before Breonna Taylor, before a lot of things, uh, when companies would invite me to speak, and I'm sure you too, they would tell me, well, what are you going to say? Don't say that racism, don't use this type of language. And it's like, ugh, why'd you even invite me, right? You know, but they're just really like <laughs> trying to put me in a box. And they're like, racism doesn't exist here. But, you know, but we like some of the stuff you're saying, blah, blah, blah. And then two years later, they're like, let's talk about all the things, right? So I to be able to see the exponential rate of conversation move from like, we're never talking about this ever to, okay, maybe there is some trauma that we can explore. So for me, now that people do have a little bit of space, a little bit of freedom to talk about some of the things that we were told, don't make it about race, don't play the race card, all of that trauma, um, that we can have some space for that. I'm really optimistic that, okay, in two years, if we are able to do this, then what can we do in two more, right? With intention. Um, so, but we can't stop. Yeah. I, I love it. I, and I'm totally with you on that front. And I'm sitting here thinking about how I lost this corporate speaking gig for talking about how all white people have internalized racism like <laughs> before, like this was like three years ago. And, uh, you know, the conversation, you're right. It really has changed so much. And, you know, I think for all of us who are committed to freedom and justice and equity and all that other kind of good stuff. It's our obligation to continue having these conversations. So I love that. All right, I'm gonna ask you the three questions that we ask all our guests. Um, the first one is what keeps you going? People like you, conversations like this, I, I just felt like four, four years ago when I first started writing, well, even I started writing about this stuff in 2015, but I didn't get published until 2019. And I just felt so alone, like there was no space, like, you know, uh, and now to be able to have like minds and friends uh, that we can fuel each other on those days that seem hopeless, right? So that's what keeps me going. Oh, I love it. I'm, it's just, um, I'm, I'm so with you. It's one of the reasons why I'm just so happy to be doing this because I get to have conversations with all these people I already know and love about <laughs> issues that matter so much to me. And, you know, e even the interesting thing is that even on the days that are, that feel kind of dark, being able to have these kind of conversations with people who are really moving the needle, it just is so, um, it's so inspiring and so helpful. And it's uh, women's rights uh, and voting rights, women's rights. Uh, yeah. But I, I think we're under attack in, in a really, um, it's a state of emergency and uh, we can't let anything slip through the cracks at this point. Uh, I, com I completely agree. Um, and then last, how can we best support efforts to create change in all these arenas that matter so much to you? Two things. I think we 
have to use our voices, but one, we have to continue to have courageous conversations like we're having now in all of our spaces. Don't just do it when you're listening to the podcast, but take it to the real streets, the people that you see every day. And then number two, be courageous listeners. Sometimes we think we've arrived at a certain place and we won't hear other people out. Like take that courage to listen and hear somebody out because we learn as we listen even more so. And so I hope that we can build courage on both sides. Yeah, I completely agree. And also get get comfortable being uncomfortable is one of the things that I've said as well, because I think part of being an active listener is being willing to sit in discomfort and not run from it because that's how we grow, right? Mm -hmm. You know, these important, critical, courageous conversations require us to to stretch and learn and and be present and be in relationship. And that's where all the good stuff is anyway. So um, I'm so grateful for you. Thank you so much for being here, Minda. Likewise, thank you for your voice. Thank you for your leadership. Appreciate you so much. Absolutely. All right. Many thanks to Minda Hearts and we will be right back. So as always, thanks to all of you for being here this week. I wanna leave you all with one thought which is this. I think it's a good week to consider how even in the aftermath of a largely positive electoral victory in the midterms, one of the things that I think this interview makes really clear is that we just have so much more work to do. And I think that taking a pause in where we are right now and considering how we can all work for greater equity where we work and where we live and in the environments in which we operate is the invitation of Minda's work. How can we all work in our everyday lives to create spaces where everyone is welcome, where all of us are free, where the contributions of all of us are valued? That's really one of the key messages that is contained in everything that Minda does. And I hope we can all, in the pause of this moment, um, and particularly with the gratitude toward trailblazers like Minda, Consider how we can take this work out into the world and really work as hard as humanly possible to counteract systemic and institutional racism and to create spaces of equity and freedom. That's my invitation to you this week. I hope you all have a great Thanksgiving and I'll look forward to talking to all of you next week as well. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening to Living Through It with ECM, a podcast for interesting times. If you want to know more about me, Elizabeth Cronice McLaughlin, head on over to GaiaLeadershipProject.com, where you can check out all our in-person and virtual leadership programs for folks who want to create change at work, at home, and in the world. You can also read my essays on politics, law, and change at newsletterwithecm.substack.com. And last, but definitely not least, you can listen to all our episodes of Living Through It ad-free over on Patreon at patreon.com slash living through it. That's patreon.com slash living through it. Thanks for listening and see you next week.